we visit the new home of the Medical Research Council's Lab of Molecular Biology and we'll learn about worms and body clocks and hear about the awesome research taking place here in Cambridge. Chris and I visited the Laboratory of Molecular Biology and we would chat about what we learned. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. In this section called Scientists at Work, we talk to people who, for some reason or another, find themselves working, researching or thinking about science in Cambridge, England. So, Chris, you went to the Medical Research Council Laboratory of Molecular Biology. They had an open day last Saturday, was it? Yes, and you came with me, Roger, and we had a great time. So I was. (laughs) It was really fun. So we got to see interesting bits and bobs about what they do. There are 600 researchers that work. Something of that kind. There's 50 teams of scientists working and 400 scientists among them. Really incredible, and such cutting-edge technology. We got a nice tour of some of the labs. Yes, certainly. We saw a department where they look at DNA. Could you explain what they were doing? I think it was the Structural Biology Group, Mm -hmm. and we got to see how they work with proteins, so how they actually get them out of the bacteria, how they visualize them using electron microscopy or X-ray crystallography. And it was really exciting to get up close to see how they get everything done in the lab and the different equipment that they use. Now, one of those bits of equipment, which I had never seen, was called X-ray crystallography. And we saw this incredible device, which they used to create crystals of some protein that they need to examine. And this machine seemed to dispense little micro, micro or nano samples of a protein solution into little trays and change the conditions in some way or another, such as 20 degrees, 30 degrees. The salt concentrations. One combination of conditions would create the ideal conditions for the protein to form a crystal. And then they look at these little trays, they find a sparkly crystal in one of them, and they hook it out of there with a tiny little tweezery thing. (laughs) A nylon loop. And then that goes into a machine, which is where they blast the crystal with Mm x-rays. My understanding of x-ray crystallography would be that they fire x-rays at this crystal, and the protein inside then reflects those x-rays and creates a pattern on some digital device. And that pattern is then assembled by a computer into a picture of what that protein might look like. So that crystal that they form with the protein, it's kind of like a mold where it's like forming a fossil. And they look at the pattern that the protein makes inside of that with the x-rays. Then they can reconstruct what the protein looks like on the computer. There was one nice thing where they then created a screen model showing the folds and the turns that the protein chains make and then they map onto that model where the particular amino acids which they happen to know the whole sequence of happen to lie on the model that was pretty awesome that was really awesome and then when they know what the shape of the protein is then they can start to figure out how it will be performing in a biological system they learn quite a bit about it and then apart from the little argument over 10p and of a coffee we (laughs) left and then I think we're going to look forward to perhaps another event like this sometime next year perhaps I think so did you talk to the guy doing the viruses what was he talking about I did Leo James so he talked about how the antibodies in our bodies are actually fighting back against viruses so they look at the structure of the antibodies the structure of the viruses and figure out how they fit together and how we fight off viruses 
And there was another... Michael um, Hastings. Michael Hastings was telling us about the body clock. It seems that at certain times of the day, your blood pressure changes. There's a kind of rhythm to your day, and your blood pressure is higher at certain times of the day. Mm-hmm. And there was so much more to it. Yeah, they had this little disc toy that we get to play with, and we can look at different hours of the day and figure out what the best time is to exercise. For instance, it looks like the best time is between 1600 and 1800 hours. And oh, look, between 22 and 2400, apparently that's the high point for nocturnal wanderings in patients with dementia. So Roger, make sure you lock yourself down between 22 and 2400. (laughs) And for those with asthma, the chronic lung disease, looks like between 2 and 4 a.m. is when people have the most severe asthma attacks. And so knowing how the body works through time, what our circadian rhythms are, hospitals can actually plan when to administer drug doses to have the maximum benefit based on when your body's most vulnerable to things. This is a can of worms. (laughs) Speaking of worms, Roger, there was a very interesting display by a group on worms. And do you know what the Latin genus name is for worms? I No. No guesses? Wormacea? Well, it's, get this, Sanor habditus no. elegans. I'm just going to call them C. elegans, or worms for short. And there are actually a lot of amazing facts about them that we should test you and our listeners, see if you know. Okay. Do you want to try? All right, well, let's start off. So what do you think is the normal lifespan of a worm? I'd say a worm lasts five years. Hmm. Well, actually, they only live about 20 days. Can you believe that? So you should be really nice to those worms in your garden. But apparently there are mutants that can age more slowly than the average worm. So little changes in their DNA have allowed them to live their lives up to six times as long, which the equivalent, if we're thinking of things in human years, would be us being able to live to 450 years. So what about comparing worms to us and the number of genes? So how many genes do you think a tiny little squiggly worm has compared to us big primates? Okay, so it needs a gene for eating, (laughs) a gene for reproducing, and maybe a gene for hair colour. So probably about a few hundred. That's actually not a bad guess. Surprisingly, they have about 20,000 genes, which is really similar to us. We only have 10,000 more. Wow. at 30,000 genes. Wow. So this is actually what helps make them such a great candidate for studying processes that we're interested in in humans, too. Okay. Incredible. There's only 10,000 more in humans. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? There is a big difference, though, when you think about nerve cells. Right. So humans have about 100 billion neurons. Okay. The research that's been done here, they've actually mapped the entire brain circuitry of the C. elegans, the worm, and how many nerve cells do you think the worms have? I'm going to have to choose a big figure, a thousand. Actually, they only have 302 nerve cells compared to our 100 billion. But even though they have so few, they're still capable, just like us, in terms of their senses, they can still smell, Mm -hmm. they can taste, Mm -hmm. and they can respond to touch, and of course they can wriggle around. How about this one, Roger? Do you think it's possible for worms to get depressed? I think this is a leading question, and the answer is yes, it is. (laughs) Very perceptive. So worms, just like humans, can get depressed. And they feel that way when they're searching for food and they haven't found a really good food source. They have the same serotonin pathway that gives them those happy feelings and can also bring them down and make them sad. And you can tell that they're depressed because rather than just staying still in one spot, which is what they do when they find a food source, they keep wriggling around trying to find a new food source and they don't lay any eggs. So they actually get really fat 
Wow. Because they just fill up with eggs. And then if you put them on a food source, they get happy again and lay lots of eggs. Gosh, it is depressing not eating if you're a worm. <laughs> you thought, where's my delivery? They said one o'clock. So given that not finding food can make them so depressed, mm -hmm. you might not be surprised to learn then that worms are actually capable of learning. And they learn to associate particular cues that they experience through their senses that they share with us, these cues that are associated with the food source that they find. They zero in on things like the oxygen concentration mm -hmm. at a food source or maybe the salt concentration, the tastes, the particular smells, even temperature. It's really interesting. And let's say they've learned to associate their food source with 20 degrees Celsius and there's no food. It will only take them about three to four hours to figure out that 20 degrees Celsius is no longer the right temperature for seeking food. Okay. And they'll look out for something different. Okay, here's a fun question for you, Roger. So as we know, regular bowel movements are an important part of life. What do you think is the regularity with which worms poop? Well, probably the same as us, maybe once a day after breakfast. But they poop about every 50 seconds, Goodness. which is why they're so great for the garden. <laughs> well, with that fact, I think we ought to end today's show. <laughs> Well, that's pretty much all for today's science show on Cambridge 105. You can pick up a podcast of our show in a few days. Search for 105 Science in the iTunes store. And you can also follow us on Twitter at 105 Science. That's pretty much all for today's show. Scientists at Work is made by the Science Show team on Community Radio Cambridge 105. You can also find past episodes on the website www.cambridge105.fm. You can also subscribe to future podcasts with the iTunes store. You can get in touch with us on the email science at cambridge105.fm or on Twitter at 105science. Till next time, it's bye from the Science Show team of Roger Frost and Chris Crease. You're listening to The Science Show on Cambridge 105. <laughs>